0: If you think you've arrived or anywhere close to it, what you need is to recover a fresh view of God as King of everything. Let me lead us in prayer as we stand. Father God, those of us who profess faith in you, call you our King, and we pray that you'd teach us tonight what that means and to mean it. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. <coughs> Do you please take a seat? I wonder how you think our church is doing? I sometimes hear people describe JPC as a successful church. I think that's because of things like our size and the range of things we do, the quality we manage to aim for. So that a temptation is for us to feel that in some sense we've arrived as a church. Christians can feel that corporately but also individually you can feel after being a Christian for a while, that you've reached a decent level of knowledge of the Bible, holiness, evangelism. God is really quite lucky to have you on his side. And we may not be crass enough to tell ourselves we've arrived, but we are often foolish enough to think we are much further on than in fact we are. And it's the danger of that kind of thinking which is the target of psalm 24 that's what it's out to hit and the message of the psalm is is this if you think you've arrived or anywhere close to it what you need is to recover a fresh view of god as king of everything So that's the cat out of the bag for tonight. In most of our services, we say the Lord's Prayer, as we did earlier, including the line, Your Kingdom Come. And Psalm 24 is really a wake-up call to what it really means to say to God, You are King of Everything, and I want you to be King of Everything. So let's um, have Psalm 24 open in front of us in the Bibles. It's on page 458. Psalm 24, and there's uh, room on the back of the service sheet to jot anything down by way of a reminder of what most strikes you from this part of God's word. Now, you'll see that above the big number 24, it says the King of Glory. Ignore that, um, because it's just the heading shoved in there by the translator. Um, Whereas next to the 24, in capitals, it says a Psalm of David. And that heading, like the other headings of the Psalms, is part of the text of the Bible. Now, sometimes the headings to the Psalms give you the background, so they give you some clue as to why it was written and um, what it's useful for. Here, the heading gives no clue except that it's by David. Um, And I take it that means David, the second king of God's Old Testament people. So the next thing to do is to dive inside the Psalm to look for clues. And in this case, verse 3 is a clue. If you look at verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? The hill of the Lord must be the hill in Jerusalem on which the tabernacle, that tent symbolising God's presence, was placed and then later replaced by the temple. And the holy place must be the tabernacle, later the temple, where people would come to offer sacrifices and to pray to God, to approach God. So it looks to me like Psalm 24 was written after the events of our Old Testament reading from 2 Samuel 6, or about those events, where David had secured more of the Promised Land, he'd captured Jerusalem as his capital city, and then he'd brought up the ark, uh, not Noah's ark, just to clarify, but that little box that was at the centre of the tabernacle. And that seems to be the background to verse 7, the other big clue. If you look at verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The gates and the doors must be Jerusalem's, but then what does it mean that the King of glory may come in? After all, far from needing to be let in anywhere, God is unstoppably everywhere. Well, it must be to do with this business of the ark being brought up to Jerusalem. The, the ark, this little box, symbolized God's presence and his rule as king. So although, of course, the Lord was there already, David bringing the ark up to Jerusalem and everyone rallying around and, and welcoming it symbolized them saying, we recognize you as our king, we accept you as our king. Now, at that point, it would have been easy for them to feel that they had arrived. After all, the hard work of conquering the Promised Land was behind them. Um, They now had a place of their own, and they might well have thought to themselves, great, we've secured ourselves a little corner of the Middle East. We're secure, we can survive okay, and we've got God on our side to bless us. Not far off what we might be tempted to think as a church of a thousand. To which in Psalm 24, David says, hold on, what God are we talking about here? Before you settle down complacently in the comfort of having your own spiritual needs met, he says this firstly, remember there are many more people out there of whom the Lord is their rightful king. So that's my first point. Remember there are many more people out there of whom the Lord is their rightful king. Look at verses 1 and 2 because that's what they're saying. The earth is the Lord's, not Allah's, not Buddha's, not natural selections, not yours, not mine. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So David was saying, yes, we've secured this little corner of the Middle East, but remember, the whole world is the Lord's. So we haven't arrived. This is this is just one small step on the long journey to seeing his kingdom come. And David's saying, look, God has not revealed himself to us so that we can just enjoy knowing him while the rest of the world blunders on in ignorance of him, he's saying God has revealed himself to us so that we can make him known to them. And the application hardly needs spelling out. It's that everywhere in the world you go, every single person you meet has been created by the Lord, by the God of the Bible, this God, the only God who is really there, and therefore they should be living for him as their rightful king. Isn't that what the risen Lord Jesus said in Matthew 28, when he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore what? Go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, make me known to everyone. And that means everyone, whatever they currently believe. That's a big sticking point for us, isn't it? So my dear mum once said to me, "Um, Ian, you wouldn't evangelise a Muslim, would you? As if that would be really distasteful. The assumption behind that question is, look, a Muslim's already got a religion, so why would you go foisting another one on him or her? To which the answer is, yes, they do have a religion, but they don't have relationship with the one God who is really there. Because to have relationship with him, the only way is through Jesus, and they haven't got Jesus So I had to come clean and and confess to mum not only would I evangelise a Muslim but I in fact have done already many a time. So can I say um, some of you who are internationals here come from a religious background, maybe Muslim, maybe Buddhist. Others come from a secular background of atheism. Either way, the Christian message says all the world's religions, all the beliefs and isms out there are just human guesswork about life. And about God but Jesus claimed to be God stepped into this world and if that is true we can stop guessing we can know that God is there we can know what God is like we can come into relationship with him by being forgiven that's why Jesus died at the center of what he came to do to pay for you and me to be forgiven back into a relationship with God I haven't got time to say more about that but if you would like a simple summary of the Christian message, do pick up this booklet, Why Jesus, from the welcome desk or the, uh, the racks uh, at the door. So the Lord Jesus says, make me known to everyone whatever they currently believe and whether or not they feel any need of me or let on any need at all. Because that's the other big thing, isn't it, that puts us off talking to people um, about Jesus. Not just their existing beliefs, but the, the fact that they can give off this impression that they're getting on fine without God. But when the Lord Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, that includes the authority to be the judge of everyone at the end of the day. And his question to every person who's ever lived will be this. If you did hear about me through contact with the Bible or Christians, how did you respond? And if you never heard about me, How did you respond to what you could know about God through creation out there and conscience in here? And at that moment the richest, most successful, happiest person in the world's eyes will become aware that they desperately need the forgiveness that Jesus came to bring but that it is too late to ask for it. And that's why if you and I are Christians we have got to keep telling ourselves that they need Jesus now whatever impression of life going fine they are radiating we need to keep trying to tell them about him that may be a long long process that they are not interested in but that's what we're about so can i ask you are you working at that can i encourage you to keep working at that despite the discouragements that i know very well of people's apathy people's negative reactions and can i also ask Do you think God might be nudging you or leading you to go and do that as a missionary in another part of the earth? Because can I remind you, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So don't think that just because you've arrived here in Newcastle that this is where God wants you for the rest of your life. Should you really stay here? So first of all, remember there are many more people out there of whom the Lord is rightful king. Now, that might sound like David is saying um, that everything is fine in here, in Israel. Um, we're obviously fine. Uh, the Lord is obviously our king. We're obviously his people. That's not what he thinks, because he says, secondly, remember that genuinely having the Lord as king involves more than meets the eye. That's my second point. Remember that genuinely having the Lord as king involves much more than meets the eye. Look on to verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? To which at one level the answer was, well, anyone in Israel who turned up with the right offerings and jumped through the right hoops. But David was not naive enough as to think that outwardly bringing the ark up to Jerusalem was the same thing as inwardly individual Israelites actually welcoming God to be God of their lives. Because David wasn't just a leader, he was a spiritual leader. And the danger for spiritual leaders, for pastors and missionaries, home group and other group leaders, is to major on the leader and forget the spiritual To major on all the necessary structures and services and sermons and studies and seminars and socials and all of the rest of it. And to forget to ask the question, where are people spiritually? And to forget that coming along here to church or to home group or to cipher, um, going through Christianity Explored and Discipleship Explored, does not equal spiritual health, doesn't even necessarily equal spiritual life, has begun. And as, God willing, we grow numerically, we need to keep asking, where are people spiritually? When did you last ask that of yourself? Or of the people you're responsible for? So here's David's spiritual health check coming up. Verse 3 again. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? That is not just outwardly, but who calls God king and means it? Well, verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. So for a start, the person who calls God king and means it has clean hands when he or she approaches God. That's about our actions. That's picture language. David's saying, this person approaches God, if I can put it like this, from the baseline of an obedient life. And he or she does not compartmentalize life into the religious bits and the rest where it really doesn't matter how you behave. So if you are this person, you will act like God is king of all your time. That's the frame here. So for example, it's just not on if having just been out of order towards our wife or our husband or our flatmates, we, we sit down to have our personal time of Bible reading and prayer And we don't register any contradiction or any connection between those. Just totally separate. It's not on to be doing something morally wrong in work time, like uh, being happy to lie for the company or facilitate abortion or whatever, but then come to church and, again, as if relating to God... And the rest of that are just totally separate matters. No connection, no contradiction between those two parts of our lives. If you call God king and mean it, you will act like God is king of all your time. That's clean hands. But then in verse 4, a pure heart means that you'll also act like God is king of all of you. Not just king of all your time that you occupy but king of all of you, right down to your heart, which is Bible-speak for the centre of your personality, where your real desires and motives can be found, and which only you and God know about, and he knows about better. So this is the person who's not just trying to give off the right impression to fellow Christians, which is like falling off a log, isn't it? Because they see so little of us. This is the person who knows that God is always watching and always sees everything. This is the person who doesn't believe there's any such thing as secret sin. This is the person who knows that the real test of our relationship with God is what we think and do when we're on our own and no one else is watching except God. So if you're this person you'll act like God is king of all your time, king of all of you And then the end of verse 4 says, You will act like God is king of all your needs. Verse 4 again. This is the person who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul, that's picture language for trust, doesn't lift up his soul to what is false, which I take it means an idol or a false god. Your idol or your God is basically what you trust ultimately to meet your needs. So Christians say that that's the Lord. The people of Israel back when Psalm 24 was written would have said the same. But for them, for example, one big temptation was to look to the fertility god Baal to meet their needs for food. Because the Lord had shown that he could look after them on the way to the promised land. He could do miraculous manna in the desert. The question now was could he look after them in the promised land? Could he do agriculture? Could he do rain and crops and sheep and goats? And one of their besetting sins was to trust the Lord for some needs and bail for others. But David is saying if you call God king and mean it, you'll act like he's king of all your needs. So that begs the question, you know, where are we looking apart from the Lord to have our needs met? What idols do we need to recognise and turn from? The psychologists say that our two deepest needs are for security and significance, which is why, for example, on the security front, our money can so easily become an idol. And savings and investments just shift subtly from being prudent to being things we trust in for future security, as if they're secure. And as someone has wisely said, one way to recognise your idols is when they're threatened or even lost. So as I've said before a few weeks ago, I guess I was not alone during the gift week when being forced to think about serious giving to equate that with loss of security. My idol is under threat. But it's a false god, isn't it? They say that for security and significance, men in general look more to achievements and women in general look to relationships. But the truth is we we all look in both directions to some measure, don't we? And again, you come to recognize your idols when either you fail them or they fail you. So, for example, you may fail an exam or a whole course or fail in competition for promotion or on the sports field. And you are disproportionately knocked for six. And you've discovered your idol, that it was success. It was being best. You can't live with yourself if you're not coming top. Or a relationship ends or someone fails us. And again, we're knocked disproportionately for six and we we realise we've been looking to other things, other people, to do for us what only God can ultimately do. The other way to recognise your idols is to ask, what are you anxious about? Because anxiety is the symptom that I have withdrawn trust from the Lord and put it either in myself or in other people neither of whom is capable of controlling the future. So that's David's sketch of the person who calls God king and means it. And it's important to say straight away he is not, not, not describing sinlessness. He's describing sincerity. After all, read on in verse 5. This person will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation well who needs salvation the answer is sinners he's not describing sinlessness here he's describing sincerity or to use the bible speak he's he's describing verse six god seekers look on to verse six such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the god of jacob and again and again in the old testament seeking god means aiming to be sincerely, transparently obedient to him. Now, because we are sinful, we will never pull that off or come anywhere close, this side of heaven. But that's what we seek. So we don't say to God, look, your standards are wildly unrealistic for this side of heaven, so can we just lower the bar and say a little bit of jealousy or unforgiveness or lust or gossip or whatever it is is okay? No, we say to God, your standards are your standards. And I'm going to aim for nothing less. And I'm constantly going to trust your forgiveness to cover the shortfall between the aim and what I actually managed to pull off. That's the only way you can live with God's standards, with with God as king, if you believe in his grace more than you believe in anything else. So remember, there are many more people out there of whom the Lord is rightful king, but don't assume that all is well In here, remember that genuinely having the Lord as King involves more than meets the eye. And then on a similar note, David says, thirdly and finally, remember there is always more of your life that needs yielding to the Lord as King. There's always more of your life that needs yielding to the Lord as King. Look on to verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. You can imagine them coming up with, with the ark to Jerusalem that the king of glory may come in. So remember, the ark symbolised God's presence and rule as king. So in David's mind, bringing the ark up to Jerusalem was a way of saying, we we recognize you, we accept you as king over us. But he says more than that, doesn't he? Because look on to verse 8. He says, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And it seems that what David's thinking there is that the ark Finally arriving in Jerusalem is like the end of a battle that God has been fighting. Because from one point of view, Israel's conquest of the Promised Land was God giving them the gift of a place to live. From another point of view, God says in the Old Testament that he was using Israel to bring judgment on the people who were already there in the land to bring judgment on their immorality and all their dreadful religious practices like child sacrifice. And in verses 7 to the end David is reminding Israel that is the kind of God that we have amongst us. We have a God who is basically at war with anything and everything that is against his will, against his character, against his creation order. Which reminded me of the superb words of that song we sing, O great God of highest heaven. Let me read them out and ask. Is this genuinely your prayer? O great God of highest heaven, Occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. And that is the spirit of verses 7 to the end. David is saying that God is at war with our sin, and by his spirit in us, he is going to keep working to resist it and overcome it. That's why I've said, remember, there is always going to be more of our lives that needs yielding to him. You're never going to get out of that. In areas that we are already aware of as, as battlegrounds, in the months and years to come, he's going to show us he doesn't just want us to be this holy... He wants us to be this holy. And there will be other areas that he has not yet pointed out to you, which he will. But like the perfect parent he is, he knows that we can't handle much at any given time. And we need to welcome the fact that he is doing that. Because once you have seen sin for what it is, as the great spoiler of life, Of fellowship with God, of fellowship with one another, it is a great thing to know that God is in your life by his Spirit and there is a stronger power at work to resist and overcome our sinfulness, even if that is difficult and sometimes very painful. It's a great thing. We should welcome it. And it's a great thing to know that ultimately, if you're a believer, you will be raised into heaven and the war against sin will finally be over. So that's Psalm 24. It's an answer to those tempted to think that they or we have in any sense arrived or come anywhere near. And the answer is, if you think that, you need to recover your view of God as King of everything. You need to understand what it really means to say to him, your kingdom, your rule, come. Because it needs to come in the lives of countless more people out there, And it needs to come more deeply in the lives of every one of us in here who professes to be Christian. And lead us to say, the one will not happen without the other. Let's pray. Father, we cannot be anything but convicted by this psalm that so often our profession of you as king is superficial and that we so easily belittle you. We confess that we need this recall to see everyone around us and in this world as your rightful subjects. And we need your help to overcome the obstacles in the way of making you known to them, especially the obstacle inside us of our unbelief that you really are their God and our unbelief that your glory is at stake. And we confess too that we need this recall to see that we are to spend the rest of our lives yielding ourselves to your rule, seeing your kingdom come in us more individually and corporately as a church. And we do thank you that by your spirit you are determined to deepen your rule in us and to overcome our residual love and compromise with our sin. And we thank you that ultimately, by your spirit, you will raise us from the dead. And everything that opposes your rule in us will be gone. And so we do pray the words of that song again. Great God of highest heaven, occupy our lowly hearts. Own them all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased us, so make us yours forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.